0: Tonight, I'm going to be preaching on a psalm of lament, which is basically a psalm that says, God, the world is broken. Make it right. Come, help us. So the text we'll read for tonight come from a point in David's life shortly after the events we read about last week from 1 Samuel 21 and Psalm 34. In last week's story, David had fled from King Saul because King Saul had gone paranoid and decided to kill him. And David had fled to the Philistine town of Gath. After he'd been there a little while, he realized it wasn't safe to be there, so he pretended to be a madman, literally acting like a lunatic, so that they would let him go. And I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 22, 6 to 23 tonight. At the beginning of this story, David's gone to hide in a forest in Judah, and then the focus of the story turns to King Saul for a few verses. So we'll begin by reading from 1 Samuel 22, Verses 6 to 23. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gabeah, with all his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me, as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that, the, was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, The town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. Uh, the story we just read in First Samuel is basically a courtroom drama, but it's a drama where absolutely everything goes wrong. The story begins with Saul holding court with his officials gathered around him, and right from the beginning, things are not right from Saul's speech, you can tell that all of his officials are Benjamites. These are people from his own tribe. And you can tell that he's been playing favorites and putting his own tribe in front of all of the other tribes of Israel. You can tell, you can tell that he's been playing favorites, his whole kingship. And basically, he's saying to the people gathered around him, Do you think some other guy is going to take care of our family like I do? Do you think anybody else is going to keep the extra benefits coming to the Benjamites? do you think a son of Jesse is going to be as good to you as I am? Saul, the king, isn't appealing to their sense of justice or to his place as the rightful king. He's just appealing to their greed and their self-interest. So from the beginning of this story, Saul is obviously corrupt. And he's got this vendetta against David who's done no wrong. And then at that moment, Doeg, the Edomite, decides to become an informer. Sometime before, when David was fleeing from Saul, Doeg had seen David go to the priests at Nob. He'd seen what had happened there. He'd seen Ahimelech give David some food and Goliath's weapon. Now, David had told Ahimelech that he was, on, he was on an errand for King Saul, and the priests had no reason to doubt him at that point. So they'd given him some help, and David had escaped to Gath. And Doeg saw all that had happened at Nob, and he'd seen David there, but he decided to keep quiet up to this point in the story. It's hard to say how long of a time has elapsed, but it's been long enough for David to flee to Gath, to flee from Gath, and in the first few verses of chapter 22 are David bringing his family to Moab, and then after that, David goes and he hides out in the forest of Judah. So it's been a while, and Doeg has been quiet the whole time. But now, at this politically opportune moment, Doeg is struck with a sudden case of recovered memory, And he tells Saul, Yeah, I saw David with the priests at Noah, at Nob. So Saul summons all the priests to come and see him. He doesn't just call the one priest who had helped David, he calls the priest and his whole family. And when the priests arrive, and presumably they don't know why they've been summoned, Saul essentially charges all of them with treason. Suddenly in Saul's mind, Ahimelech hasn't just helped David a little bit. He's joined a conspiracy to assassinate Saul and try to bring in a new king. And in response to these official charges that have been laid against him that may have very real consequences, Ahimelech offers a pretty fair defense of not guilty by reason of ignorance. He didn't know until that very moment that things weren't good between David and Saul. David had come to him all the time, always doing King Saul's errands for this and that. So Ahimelech insists that he knew nothing of the whole affair. Now, you can question whether Ahimelech shouldn't have been a little bit suspicious of David showing up, eating food and a weapon to go to an errand for King Saul. But still, it's pretty clear he didn't do anything actively wrong. But none of that matters to Saul you can tell that Saul has already made up his mind what the verdict and the sentence was going to be even before this mockery of a trial started. He doesn't even bother to counter Ahimelech's plea of not guilty. He just goes straight to sentencing the priest and his whole family to death. Saul is so out of line here that even his buddies... Even the Benjamites who he's made his officials and who he's given rank and benefits and all kinds of things to, even those people are not going to go down this road with him. But Doeg the Edomite has no such hesitation. Doeg is happy to carry out the death sentence that Saul, the king and judge, has handed out, and Doeg even takes it a step farther, and he goes and he wipes out the whole town the priest came from. In this text, we go from an angry, corrupt king to a mockery of a trial, to actual genocide. And this is all in the midst of God's people with their very king right in the midst of the guilt of the story. Justice is nowhere to be found here. Often our world today isn't too much different. One of the clearest reminders I've seen of that in a while has been the news lately about ISIS, the Islamic State that's taken over part of Iraq and Syria. It's been hard the last couple weeks to read stories of what all may have happened there. In fact, some of it seems to mirror the story we read from First Samuel. And without getting all, into all of the details this evening, terrible things have been happening in that part of the world. We hear stories of thousands of people having to flee their homes, of Christians and other minorities running for their lives. It's hard to read stories like the one we read in 1 Samuel 22. It's hard to hear about things happening in the world. And these stories leave us, rightly, with feelings of outrage. How can this happen? How can the world be so broken? Where can we go to find justice how do we respond when things are just not right in this world? Now, there's a lot of ways we can respond to injustice, but many of them don't really get at the fundamental problem and its fundamental answer. One way that people deal with injustice in our world is by engaging in a sort of false humanistic optimism. You know, we can make, we can make the world a better place if we just work hard enough and things will turn out okay. A lot of contemporary aid movements and government action adopts an approach like this. Somehow, if everybody just comes to their senses and do, does good things, we can make the world right. Things are not really all that bad, and if we just pull together, we can fix it all. And there's some truth to that approach. We humans are capable of doing a lot of good in the world, and it's good to hope and work for things to be better. Doing good is a good thing to do. But in the end, relying on our own human efforts to deal with evil is a dead end street. The corruption, the evil, and the guilt in all human hearts goes deep, deep, deep beyond even our ability to comprehend. And expecting to get rid of evil in the world by our own acts is just plain foolishness this sort of humanistic activism denies the full reality of evil and it ignores the limitations that we as humans have to deal with it and while we're sometimes tempted to false humanistic optimism we more often adopt the survival technique of just going numb and tuning out the bad stuff we turn off the news and we do our best to just forget about it and get on with our own lives I was talking to a Calvin College professor about this a few months ago, and she said she'd seen this trajectory in class after class after class of students coming into Calvin. They'd come in their freshman year all pumped up to change the world, but then after a year or two of hearing about all the things going wrong in the world, after a year or two where they heard about this huge crisis and that systematic injustice that an individual couldn't possibly hope to solve, these students would just give up, and tune out they'd say yeah all that stuff it's real but i can't change it so i'm just gonna get married buy a house buy a car have a couple kids and get on with my life and not worry about all the bad stuff out there we often have that temptation especially when in a place when our lives are so good to just ignore the world it get on, get on with our own more or less okay lives But again, this way of facing evil in the world doesn't acknowledge the reality of evil. And it leaves us nowhere to go when evil comes from out there and starts to strike our own lives in here. Another temptation that we experience that's sort of the opposite of those first two is to look at how bad the world is and just become bitter and depressed. Twenty minutes of reading the news or two minutes of reading the headlines on an average day could give all of us enough reason to just go back to bed. It's easy to settle into despair and say there is no good left in this world. The world is in huge trouble, and there's just no hope. Now, despair at least acknowledges the reality of evil in the world, but it leaves us stuck there, without resources, without reasons to fight injustice, and without hope. And apart from Christ, there really is no hope in this world. But when we despair, we turn blind eyes to how God is at work in so many ways, even in this broken world. The basic problem, if you get to the root of it, the basic problem with humanistic activism or numb denial or hopeless despair is that all of these responses to evil turn our eyes away from God to something else. When we feel outraged or numb or depressed at the brokenness of the world, we need to turn to God. Our fundamental pose is not screaming in anger or shrugging in denial or collapsing on hopelessness. Our fundamental pose as Christians is to kneel before the Lord in prayer. When we take injustices before God, we acknowledge the reality of evil in the world, but we also acknowledge the reality of God's sovereignty, and the final justice that God will hand out. It's only in going to God that we can find true peace and true hope. So with that in mind, I want us to read Psalm 52 now as an example of turning toward God in the midst of a terribly broken world. Psalm 52 is a psalm that David wrote in response to hearing the news about what King Saul and Doeg had done. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, oh, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see in fear. They will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. David begins Psalm 52 by bringing charges against this wicked man, this sarcastically termed mighty hero. Now, one way to see psalms of lament is to see them as courtroom dramas. In the story behind this psalm in 1 Samuel, injustice has been grossly served. Saul scatters accusations indiscriminately, and he hands out truly cruel and excessive punishments. There is no earthly justice to be found there. And so when David hears about it, he takes his case to the truly supreme court. Saul's court gave a parody of justice, so David goes to God on high to get the real thing. In the first four verses of Psalm 52, David metaphorically grabs Doeg and drags him before God to hear the charges against him. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction, it is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. David is basically setting out charges against Doeg in the supreme court of heaven. And David gives us a model for prayer here. When there is no earthly hope left, we bring our lament before God. When human justice goes terribly wrong or is nowhere to be found, we go to the divine courtroom. It is not our job to right every wrong in the world, and neither is it our destiny to stand powerless and empty-handed and broken before the darkness. It is our privilege, it is our right as God's people to go before him and press charges against evil and against evildoers in our world. Now, of course, a note of caution that as we do that, we are wise. Well, we're wise to pray that God will restrain the evil that the wicked are able to commit in the world. And then hardest of all, we need to pray even for the conversion and the salvation of our worst enemies. The Psalms of Lament give us, give us language to really challenge evil and to plead with God to bring evildoers to account, but they don't give us an easy out of caring for our enemies and even praying for their good. We come before God as a sinful people ourselves, and we so often want vengeance and destruction for our enemies when we should be praying for mercy and for peace. When we bring our complaints to God, we need to check our own hearts to make sure we truly want God's good justice and peace, not just satisfaction for our own rage and outrage. But with that said, Psalm 52 and a whole lot of other psalms do give us warrant to lay charges against evil and evildoers in our world and to pray that they experience divine justice for their wrongdoing. And we can be assured that God does, in fact, punish evil. When injustice is done, God will respond. In verse 1, David sarcastically refers to the wicked man as a mighty hero, but then in verses 5 to 7, the psalm reminds us that God has the power to deal with such evil, mighty men. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Mighty oppressors might feel secure about their power today, but God is able to snatch them up like weeds and uproot them like insignificant little trees. There's this traditional Nigerian house story about a guy called the Mighty Man. And this mighty man went around declaring to everybody that he was the strongest man the world had ever seen. But one day he wandered into the wrong village, and that village had its own mighty man. And the mighty man, the second mighty man, was the type of guy who went out and caught a couple elephants for his dinner every single day. So when this second man heard the first man's boasting, he laughed and laughed, and then he grabbed that guy with one hand and started walking out of the village to teach him a little lesson about who the mighty man really was. But on the way out, this second mighty man ran into a third mighty man, and they started talking a little bit, and since they were all pretty proud of being mighty men, mighty man number two and three got into a huge debate about who really was the mighty, mighty man. Well, it turned out that mighty man number two threw the original mighty man out of his way, and then number two and number three got into a huge fight. And the original guy just crawled away and limped home and never again bragged that he was a mighty man. And meanwhile, the two bigger, more mighty men got into a huge wrestling match that went on and on, and finally they clobbered each other, and they went flying up into the heavens, and they got stuck there. And to this day, they continue fighting. And so whenever you hear thunder... It's the two mighty men up in the sky, still arguing about who the mightiest man is. So that's where thunder came from, apparently. The point of the story is that, besides telling you where thunder came from, is that no matter how mighty a mighty man is in this world, he will eventually run into someone stronger than himself. And even those two mighty men up in heaven will someday have to deal with the real mighty man who will return from the throne of God in heaven. All of the mighty people in all our world, all of the mighty oppressors who trust in their own power will sometime, someday find themselves in the inescapable grasp of the mightiest man of all. When our King Jesus returns to judge the wicked, there will not be any discussion or debate about who is in control. When God brings justice, no one is exempt, no one can get around it, and his sentences are always just. Now, in the closing verses of Psalm 52, David switches, switches gears and he speaks in the persona of a righteous man and he compares himself to an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Now, what's interesting at this point about olive trees is that they can live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's some olive trees in some different areas of the Mediterranean that scientists think have been around for 1600, 1800. Two thousand years. The person who follows God, says Psalm fifty-two, is like one of those olive trees that lives on and on and on and continues to yield good fruit and flourish, while the wicked are like weeds. They're like tiny little trees that get just get yanked up and tossed away. This doesn't always happen on our timeline. But Psalm 52 tells us that when we bring our complaints and laments to God, the day will come when we will flourish forever as God's righteous people and the wicked will pass away into destruction. After hearing from Psalm 52, I want to sound one final note from 1 Samuel 22. At the end of our reading from 1 Samuel 22, we find that one of the priests, Abiathar, somehow managed to escape from Doeg. And Abiathar flees to join David, and when he gets to David, David welcomes him. And David, well, David admits that he did something wrong. It's hard to see exactly what David could have done differently given his situation, but still David recognizes that he started off the chain of events that led to Abiathar's whole family and village getting wiped out. And so David says, I'm sorry. And he gives sanctuary to Abiathar, Stay with me. Don't be afraid. You'll be safe with me, David assures this man fleeing from terrible evil and awful injustice. Now, in that moment, David is giving something of a pointer ahead to Christ, and he's also giving us something of a model to follow as Christ's people. Now, Jesus, of course, had absolutely no responsibility for the evil in the world, But still, he entered our world. He entered into the chain of events that was leading to death for all of us. And Christ offered divine sanctuary to all of us, his people. Just like David welcomed the fugitive and offered, promised to protect him, Christ welcomes everyone who flees to God from the evil of this world. And Christ offers and promises that he will keep all of his people safe forever. If we are in Christ, we truly do not need to be afraid of anything in this world. And if we are in Christ, we first of all, we bring our laments to God in prayer. But based on God's goodness and grace, we also do what we can to help those who are suffering, to those who experience injustice, and to those who are oppressed. Two final points from these texts. First, when we see injustice in the world our prayers can and should take the shape of entering the divine courtroom to seek God's justice. We don't place our trust in human activism. We don't give up on the world and go into numb denial. And we don't despair. We bring it to our Lord in prayer. We lament over the evil in the world. We charge evildoers in the divine courtroom where justice is always finally accomplished. And second, even when injustice and evil seem to go on and on and on, we trust in Jesus, our judge and our king, that he will hear our complaints and answer our calls for justice. When things are hopeless, we again and again flee to Jesus. Jesus who engaged in a battle to the death with the forces of evil. Jesus who rose again as the victor over sin and death. Jesus who saves each of us. Jesus who brings God's kingdom and God's justice to this world. And at that time when the true kingdom comes, our trust in God's unfailing love will be fully justified. Our praises will continue forever with God's faithful people and our hope in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be fulfilled forever. In that hope.